0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have a lot of uh, wonderful ideas and a lot of uh, new ideas to discuss today, um, having to do with, with, with all sorts of things. Um, but I, I would say that the, the main theme here is is something that's very, very challenging, especially something as old as Torah. Torah, you know, is like predates the universe. That's, that's our tradition. Um, the Talmud sort of like shockingly actually gives a number. It says that the, the Torah existed 974 generations before the world was existed. Now, it was given in the 26th generation, um, after the world was created, and so not coincidentally, uh, nine hundred and seventy-four and twenty-six add up to one thousand. So one thousand is a, like a very big, cool number in in this regard. Um, but we're not going to get down da- in, into the details of how that breaks down exactly. Just just sort of an or- orientation of the foreverness of the Torah, the eternality of the Torah, um, but the fact that it's very ancient at the same time. So, so here's the theme that that I will be sort of running through this talk and is a very um, important contemporary theme because this is something that we, we struggle with um, in terms of uh, Torah's relationship with uh, contemporary society, ma- 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 moderni- modernity. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? The modern world. Um, or let me just kind of like uh, make it just short and sweet. Um, how do you make it new and old at the same time? Because the Torah is old and the Torah is ever fresh. It's new and it's old at the same time. So so maintaining that balance, um, we don't want it to be too new because if it's too new, then it's not the Torah. It becomes something else, right? It's kind of like your own thing. Uh, we don't want it to be too old because if it's too old, then it's not accurately and honestly reflecting the present, like it, like it, like it ought to, and like it's meant to. So, so how do you strike that balance? How do you keep the Torah old and new at the same time, which is the proper dynamic, by the way? That's the, that's what the Torah is striving to be, because it is this forever construct. Okay. So let me kind of give you a more um, uh, here and now example. Um, those are all concepts and big words and all the rest, but let's uh, let's just kind of see it in a, in a very real way. So this is uh, what uh, Reb, Tor- Reb Shlomo would call a cash Torah. This is from Reb Shlomo and just like one of these things that you should just carve into your brains because it's, it's just always good to just have uh, at your fingertips at any time. So here's the question. Why do we dip challah in salt? Okay, and uh, so so Reb Shlomo said that the and by the way for those who, of you who don't know, uh, at the Shabbos table, um, you know you have to have two loaves of challah uh, for each of the meals, and you you dip it in salt before you you know distribute the challah. So that's that that is that's how we do it, and the question is why. And Reb Shlomo explained it like this. Challah is only good if it's fresh, right? Like fresh bread. You don't like if you walk into a bakery. Like there's a separate section. Day old bread. As soon as it's a day old, it's like in another category. Okay. Bread's got to be fresh. It's got to be new. Salt is a preservative. Salt is something that 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 that, that keeps an old thing like um, accessible, right? It's it's a preservative. So that's why we're taking. That's why we're taking the challah. And, and dipping it into the salt. Isn't that cool? Because it should be, your Torah should be, because the, the Torah itself is compared to, to bread, in Kemach, in Torah, right? So, so your Torah has to be new and old at the same time. And that's why we're taking challah and dipping it into salt. Okay. Now we're going to continue to explore this theme. And... We just read about Pinchas and Pinchas is is an amazing amazing personality um, and he himself you know just on a very surface level exhibits this sort of like contradictory um, dynamic in, his, in 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 his life story and this is an, an aspect of his greatness. Pinchas is is someone who um, kills Zimri and Cosby, which were this sort of like couple that shouldn't have been happening when they were happening. Um, Zimri was the head of the tribe of Shemin, which was a very exalted position among the Jewish people. And he just sort of, you know, to put it in modern terms, hooked up in public with Cosby, who was a daughter of the king of Midian. So, so here you have like this sort of like this forbidden relationship that was done in the most public way. They, 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 before they went off to do what they did, they, they, they sort of like mocked Moshe Rabbeinu, like to his face, and then went off inside their tent. And Pinchas goes and and stops it because this, alongside the whole event of Bal Peor, which is a whole another. Just, just one of the most out there episodes in the entire Torah. I guess I can't give that as an introduction without telling you a little bit about it. But, you know, this is one of those deep dives. Like, once you even touch on that subject, you can just, like, disappear. But I'll, I'll see if I can just just skim the waters, so to speak, just so you know if, you, if you're not familiar with it. Um, Pinchas is basically this whole story of Pinchas coming in and, and he executes Cosby and Zimri in the act, um, uh, and stops this plague that was was that killed 24,000 people among the Jewish people. You'll note that's a that's a very resonant number because you know that's the number of students of Rabbi Akiva that died during the Sfira period. So, so when we talk about that period of mourning between Pesach and Shavuos, or Pesach and Lagba Omer, that's uh, commemorating the death of the 24,000 students of of Rabbi Akiva. And here you have that number again, not coincidentally, and they say that that, that's a reincarnation of those 24,000 that died um, in this plague after Zimri and Cosby uh, uh, got together. Uh, so, So anyway, Pinchas acts the way he acts, executes them, and how does Hashem bless Pinchas? And this is the contradiction that I was referring to earlier. He blesses Pinchas with the covenant of peace, with a brisy shalom. So you say, well, wait a second, you know, peace? Like that? It, it, that doesn't, that's not the first word that pops into my mind after Pinchas's action, that, that he brought peace into the world. And yet, that was God's opinion, right? The, very much. Although, and this is one of the fascinating things, and there's tons of Torah on this as well, um, The word shalom in the Torah scroll itself, the vav of the word shalom has a little section missing from the center. There's like a little slash mark or a little nakuda, a little dot that's missing from that vav. And in fact, the the rabbis sort of like debate, what is the status of that vav? In other words, let's just make sure that we're communicating here. The point is, is that the word shalom is written incompletely. So, in other words, there was some. And then there's a question that little slash in the above is that showing that a full piece wasn't achieved by Pinchas's action? Or is it even deeper than that, that this super piece was achieved by Pinchas? Remember, one of the rewards of Pinchas was that he becomes Eliyahu Hanavi, right? So he sort of like, kind of like did this execution, which is death. And yet one of his rewards is Pinchas zu Eliyahu, in the language of the rabbis. Pinchas is Eliyahu, and of course, Eliyahu lives forever. So again, another sort of like interesting dynamic where we're seeing these opposites being married together. So, so that would definitely be um, a support for learning that this vov is not an incomplete vov, but this vov is like a super vov, and that that little slash mark, that little white space in the vov is not coming to diminish it, but coming to supercharge it. Now, since we're on the topic, I want to share with you something from um, Rav Frimer in the Eretzvi, I'm going to put it in my own words, but this is this is what he's saying, and it's 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 awesome. Like, because if you have an incomplete vav, and by the way, the rabbis also debate: is it even a vav at all? If you cut a vav in half, perhaps it's two yuds. So there's there's Torah learning, and and the Torah explains that that path that it's not it's not even a vav anymore. It's two yuds, which is very interesting. But we're not going to go down that path. I'm going to explain to you right now. In my own words, how it is that that vav, which is incomplete, becomes a super vav? Okay, so so here it is. You see, we have um, the Ramban talks about this, although I'm sure he's not the first. In his introduction to the Chumash, which is that the Torah itself is black fire on white fire. So so remember, the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. So, so never think of it just as like a, a document. It's also a document, but that's the least of it in a way. It's really the blueprint of reality. It's the fabric of existence. It just happens to also exist in book form, okay? But don't confuse the Torah with a book. The book is, the, the Torah is way more expansive. The, 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 we live within the Torah, okay? The Torah correlates with the mind of God. So we're in the consciousness of God. If you want to know the white spaces between us, right? Like what exists between me and you right now, the consciousness of God, right? It's 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 deep. It's deep, and I I really do think that this is one of the um, one of the turning points separating uh, uh, people who really want to try to understand what the Torah is, what Judaism is, and everything like that. Can't understand Judaism at all, unless you come to um, terms with what the Torah is, because obviously the Judaism, that's, that's the playbook, right? So until you know what the Torah is, you're not even going to be able to approach what Judaism is or what we are individually and collectively and what this world is and what this world is meant for. So it's, a very, important, it's very important to figure out what is the Torah, And I really feel like one of the turning points in a person's spiritual development and intellectual understanding is when a person begins to understand that the Torah is not a book, that the Torah is the fabric of the universe, right? God's mind, and that we're existing within it. A very important step that any person who really wants to grow has to take. Okay, so now, with that in mind, let's return back to this idea that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So what does that mean? Okay. Well, first of all, now you're seeing the Torah not just as a a sheet of paper or as a scroll, some animal skin with some ink on it. Now you're actually seeing it in a very cosmic, multidimensional point of view. Black fire on white fire, right? It's like 3D, 4D, 5D now. You know, it's it's, all the rest. But still, what does that mean, though? So black fire means... That which is revealed, okay? So my head, my face, this would be black fire. Remember, each one of us is a letter in the Torah. So that's black fire. That's that's the revealed aspects of creation, okay? So your desk is black fire, right? Um, Mars is black fire, right? A, a football is black fire. Anything that's revealed is black fire, okay? But now... All of reality is, like, the, the revealed aspects of reality are, are a very small subset of the whole fabric of existence, which is dimensions and dimensions and dimensions, what we call in the Seferi Kadoshim olamos worlds, spiritual worlds. I mean, it's just stratas and stratas of light that just keep on going, okay? So, the revealed world is actually a tiny percentage of all that exists but it can't be seen with the eye, okay? So that's the white fire. So black fire, let's just review. It's actually, I'm using a lot of words to describe this, but let me make it very short and sweet. Black fire is that which is revealed. White fire is that which is there, but can't be seen. Okay, say it one more time. Black fire is that which is revealed, the revealed aspects of creation, white fire is all that's there, all the spiritual realms that are there. Not that we believe that they're there. Big distinction here. It's not that we believe that they're there. They're there. We just can't see them. That's the white fire. Okay. So the white fire is really the realm of the infinite. And um, I'll just give you one small level, which is kind of cool. You know, uh, each of us has a soul, and the soul is divided into five parts. Three of those parts exist within you. Two of those parts exist outside of you. And your soul extends all the way up to the Kisei HaKovid, to the throne of glory. Okay? So, we talked about this last week. That means that the majority of you, right? And this is just you right now, the the great majority of you, actually exists outside of your body, right? Just like the majority of existence exists outside of the revealed realm, right? The white fire as opposed to the black fire. So what I'm trying to say is is that you see a very similar dynamic with you yourself because the part of you that's revealed is only a small portion of all of you. Do you get it? And 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 the wonderful piece of imagery... the that the rabbis bring is that the body is the shoe to the soul. Meaning to say that just like your shoe covers a very small part of your body, so too your body only covers a very small part of your soul. All right, so why am I bringing up all of that? Because if each one of us is a letter in the Torah, and that's the revealed aspects of the Torah, isn't it interesting that each letter is encircled by white fire, meaning to say <laughs> that you've got the part of your soul that's inside of you, that's part of the black letter, that's part of that which is revealed, but then you've got the other aspect of your yourself, the two parts of your soul, the Chaya and the Yechida, which exists outside of you. Yechida is the highest aspect of your soul, and remember, that has the word yachid in it, which means together, one. And that's the level where all of our souls join together into one collective soul, okay? But all of that white fire surrounds every single letter. So there you have the true representation of yourself. It's not just you as the letter, but it's you as the letter and the white fire that surrounds the letter. Okay, now you have you. So that's just uh, like kind of like a little snapshot of our existence there. Um, by the way, interesting halacha. You ready for this? We know that if any letter of the Torah is missing, that the Torah scroll itself is not kosher and can't be used. Okay. If two letters are touching themselves or touching each other, the 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 safer Torah is also not kosher. Why? Because you, when the two letters are touching each other you have diminished, you ready for this? You have diminished the white fire in the Torah. Because when the two letters are touching each other, that normally was space for white fire to be present. And now it's not present because the two black letters are touching each other. Now there's not the white fire there. Which means that we don't just have to have the black fire, we need to have the white fire. Okay, And that the Torah scroll can't be kosher without the white fire either. You see, we ourselves can't be complete until we acknowledge that there's so much more around us that can't be seen. And I really think that this is one of these um, interesting parting of the ways that that happens between people who um, fancy themselves to be rationalists and those who um, are called sometimes respectfully and sometimes disrespectfully believers, quote unquote, right? So, so what's the difference? The difference is, well, is all that exists, all that exists, can it be seen with your eye? Now we know better now, but it it it, it wasn't always the case. You know, like if I, seeing is believing, right? If I can't see it, then I have to be a believer, right? I have to just believe that it's there, but there's no proof that that which I can't see is actually there, right? So so, so all that's been destroyed by modern science. Now, no, 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 no. There are things that are 100% actually there that you can't see with your eye. So I'll just give you one example because I like it which is that uh, Louis Pasteur, who was, you know, um, the, the inventor, by the way, of microbiology. Okay, so, so he said, you know why all you guys are dying and getting horribly sick? Is because there are these microbes in this unpasteurized milk. By the way, the word pasteurized comes from Louis Pasteur, who said, if you boil the milk, You'll kill these microbes and then the milk will be safe for you to drink and you won't get sick. And the villagers at the time said, ha, 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 you're telling us there are these little tiny things in the milk that we can't see and it's making us sick? You know, you're a believer, right? This is not science. isn't it? Look how far we've advanced in the scientific realm. But those things were there. and And he proved it. Right. Think about and you know, forget about the subatomic realms, which we now can see with atomic microscopes. And what about planets and clusters and black holes, which we can see, you know, through these, you know, the Hubble telescope and all these amazing, amazing uh, different cameras that we've developed, right? I mean, they've launched telescopes in outer space, and we can see through telescopes that have been launched into outer space so that we can see even further. That That's how amazing all this is. So, of course, things exist that you can't see with your eye alone. Of course they do. And, and, and science, in terms of physics, and in terms of mathematics, have taken this idea even further. They say there are dimensions that exist that can't be seen. Dimensions, not just a cluster of a galaxy or something like this. Dimensions that exist that can't be seen with the eye. Now, this used to be the the territory of religion. But here you see the convergence between science and Torah. Right? That that science is still catching up with Torah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because... Well, for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons, and this will just continue and continue and continue, is that Torah has the most amazing premise, which is that God is one. And so everything, you know, the more we look into everything, the more we see unity in all things. And this is, of course, the premise of Torah. Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokenu, Shema Right? God is one, and his oneness saturates all of creation. Okay, so, so now let's get back to this idea that Pinchas kills Cosby and Zimri, and he gets blessed with the covenant of peace, but the word shalom for peace is spelled incompletely because the vav in the word shalom, and you can see this in the Torah scroll, I just saw it again yesterday, has a little interruption in that vav, so the question is, first of all, is it above at all? Maybe it's two yuds. That's the Bala Torah that question, and supports both sides. But let's say it is above. So now, based on our discussion, we said black fire is that which is revealed. White fire is like the infinite which is around us. So now what's the support that this vuv is not just a broken vuv, but this vuv is actually a supercharged vuv? So now we're ready for the idea. It's because God implanted his white fire within the black fire. Did you hear that? God took a point. As Rabbi Frumer says, a nakuda. A point, is a point, like a, like a vowel, right? God took a... Nakuda, a point of his white fire, and he implanted it within the black fire. So this is this is Pinchazu Eliyahu, and Eliyahu lives forever, right? It's wow, wow, wow. Okay, so let's talk more about Pinchas, and more about how do you balance the new and the old. So I'm going to tell you something that I kind of kind of stumbled upon. I had this idea many years ago, but trying to go deeper into it, okay? By the way, if you get a good idea, don't stop thinking about the idea. Because I promise you, there are levels and levels and levels and levels and levels within that idea that are, you know, you, you can doesn't have to be, oh, I had this thought one time. No. Like, just keep digging. Okay? We're going to talk about digging in a moment. So here is the idea that Pinchas, it's not an idea, it's a fact, Pinchas is the same gematria as Yitzchak. So, wow, these are two major, major figures in the Torah. Pinchas and Yitzchak have the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent to their names? That's really interesting. So, obviously they have, like, quite a bit in common. So, so, you know, I'm sure everyone had this thought immediately, which is gvura, or din, right? Like like Yitzchak, you know, Avraham is chesed, and Yitzchak is din, right? So we can say, in English, sometimes kindness and judgment. Din and gvura are, gvura is like strength or power, right? And, and so it's in... Contrast to Abraham, um, and of course we see Pinchas like not only was the general of the of the fight against um, to take revenge on Midianites as as commanded by God, Pinchas leads the charge, but he's he's also besides a general, um, and by the way he was on the short list to succeed Moshe Rabbeinah, right? It was almost Pinchas and not Yehoshua. Just to give you a, a, a notion of the great stature of who Pinchas was, but Pinchas was considered for whatever reason, perhaps not the n- not the not the choice, not the choice like Yehoshua was. So so fine, but but let's just appreciate how how great Pinchas was. Okay, so Pinchas obviously was a warrior, so we see this aspect of Gvura within him. Um. But I want to go much deeper than that, right? That's just kind of like a first glance comparison. And in the background, let's let's keep in mind this this theme of the Torah being old and new. We have to keep it old, and we have to make it new. So, so how does that tie into this discussion of Pinchas and Yitzchak? So, so one of the amazing Episodes of Yitzchak. Yitzchak is a bit of a mysterious figure in the Torah because he's the the least discussed of the Avos of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And interestingly, someone pointed this out to me that you 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 never see Yitzchak talking with um with his wife Rivka, like between Avram and and Sarah. There's dialogue that's recorded in the Torah between Yaakov and. Uh, Leah and, and, and Rachel, there's there's dialogue recorded, but there's no dialogue recorded between Yitzchak and, and Rivka. Very interesting. I'll give you another sort of interesting, mysterious aspect of, of, of Yitzchak, which is that Avraham at one point is called Avraham, Avraham in the Torah. That's right when he raises the knife to sacrifice Yitzchak, uh, an angel calls out, Avraham, Avraham, don't don't do it. We see now that you are following God like to the utmost, utmost, right? And um, by the way, Yaakov, we see Yaakov Yaakov, Yaakov's name is mentioned twice in the Torah. Um right right when he's told to go down to see Yosef, he's just found out that Yosef is alive. His spirits have been revived, he's Yaakov Yaakov now, right? But you never see, we don't see in the Torah, that that the phrase Yitzchak, Yitzchak. So, you know, when you first kind of hear that, you might say, "Well, I guess maybe Yitzchak never reached the level of Abraham or, or Yaakov, right? Because to have your name called out twice is is quite a special thing. We even have Moshe Moshe, right? So it's 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 big. But then I heard something which was pretty wild, which is no, Yitzchak was always living at the level of Yitzchak Yitzchak. <laughs> Isn't that wild?" So he ne- it never had to be called out because <laughs> he was always there. Wow, that's pretty extraordinary, right? And I'll tell you something else. As long as I'm downloading on Yitzchak right now, Torah that I only heard from Reb Shlomo, but it's very very interesting. Which is that, remember, he's kuvori, he's din. Avraham's tent was open on all four sides. By the way, that's that's one of the levels of a chuppah where 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 people get married. That then so to speak, is their first home. That's where they come together as men and wife. Um, And so so they should have a, it's like a blessing, a chuppah, open on all four sides, that it should be like the home of Avraham Avinu, like the tent of Avraham Avinu, where guests, wherever direction they approached Avraham's tent, they could feel as though not only that they were welcome, but another level, that they were walking through the front door, isn't that something? Very special. Very, very special. Now, you ready for this? I heard from Rib Shlomo that Yitzchak, his tent, not only was not open on all four sides, but there was a guard at the door. And if you knocked at the door of Yitzchak, the guard would say, Yes, can I help you? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> also Tor. Also Tor also Torah, but very different. And now we're getting into this idea of the new and the old. You see, Yitzchak made his own path in Torah, but he didn't just do his own thing, right, in modern parlance. He was doing what Avraham did, and he was doing what the Torah commanded, but he was doing it as Yitzchak. You know, one of the Ger rabbis, I believe it was the, I, w- I believe it was the one who um, succeeded the Sfas uh had different minhagim, different practices from the previous Rebbe, right? You know, and minhagim, these customs in Hasidic dynasties, and among the Jewish people in general, by the way, are, are, are very, very important. You know, like, huge, giant ideas are contained within these customs, and that's why we're very, very careful to, to maintain the customs. Like, for instance, just to give you an idea of how holy they are, just one practical example. Um, astronomically, we know the calendar days uh, pretty accurately. Um, they knew them very accurately back then, but there was a question mark. But all the math of the um, calendar arrangements um, that were made two thousand years ago are stunningly, like almost, mer- almost supernaturally precise. This, in and of itself, is a whole field of—I um, don't like to use the word proof, but let's say very strong argument for the divinity of the Torah. And the, almost the prophetic nature of the sages is how were they able to come with up with the finest, most accurate calendar out of all the people in the world, which is accurate to this day? How did that happen? So they say that's supernatural. It, it couldn't have happened just with normal intelligence. And by the way, the ancient non-Jews gave this confirmation, this validation, of the supernatural aspect of these calculations to the Jews in their day, and we see that it still exists to this time. So this is like a sort of an under-discussed, under-appreciation, under-appreciated aspect of, of the divinity of Torah. Um, but anyway, today we can actually measure with instrumentation when the new month, the new lunar month starts. So it's exactly when they said it starts, but before there was a question mark, and now there is no question mark. Okay? So because there was a question mark back in the day, we'd have what's called the two-day Rosh Chodesh. So most months out of the year, there are a few exceptions, Av is coming up, that's that's one of the exceptions, we have always, there'll be two days of Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh means the, the first day of the new month, by the way. And the rule is that when you have two days of Rosh Chodesh, the first day of Rosh Chodesh is the last day of the previous month, and the second day of Rosh Chodesh is the first day of the new month. Okay. So, so now, that has implications in terms of our observance of the holidays in, outside of Israel. So, outside, so inside of Israel, like Pesach and Shavuos, are seven-day holidays. Um but outside of Israel there there are eight day holidays um so so the so the question is why are they eight day holidays um and the answer is is because there was a bit of a question mark when the holiday actually started and when it ended and therefore Just to make sure that we weren't transgressing the holiday, we turned these seven-day holidays into eight-day holidays outside the land of Israel. Okay, so now here's the question that many, many people ask to this day, which is, if our instrumentation is better now than it used to be, why don't we keep seven-day holidays outside the land since the uncertainty is gone? Okay, does everyone hear the question? And I'm going to give you the official answer. I'm going to give you one more answer afterwards, but first let me give you the official answer. The official answer is because, um, and this is the language of the Talmud, minhag avosenu, which means it was the custom of our fathers. Meaning to say that the minhagim, the customs of the Jewish people, are so loaded with secrets and amazing aspects of almost prophetic quality that we don't disregard them, even if factually they may not be necessary for the reason why they were instituted to begin with. Now, let me just give you one other explanation. But again, this is just to show you how much we value minhagim, customs. And you know, Godwin, we're going to talk about Gehenim a little bit later. Uh, and someone pointed out to me recently that if you re- Gehenim, of course, is translated as hell. It's not the uh, secular concept of hell. It's a, it's, a, it's a purification zone that every soul goes through before ascending to uh, Shemayim, um, to heaven. And it just cleans up the soul. Um, we're going to get more into that later. Um, but but the idea is that m- m- minhagim and Gehenim or minhag and Gehenim are the same letters, which is interesting. In other words, in other words, it's 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 a demonstration of the importance of minhagim and 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 why they should be kept and and not cast aside. So anyway, the in Ger, the new Rebbe took over, and he was not preserving all the minhagim of the previous Geri Rebbe, which would be considered like, what? (laughs) What are you doing? And, you know, this gets back to the new and the old. In Torah, individuality is greatly prized. And you can really only fix your neshama to the extent that you can become the best version of who you are. But who you are within the context of Torah. See, again, new and the old. How do you balance the new and the old? What about if the best version of me is a, just a giant pork eater? <laughs> and that is just just the, the supreme, most wonderful version of me. No, no, no. Because you know what you did? You became too new. <laughs> you, lost, you lost that balance between the new and the old. You took that challah, you didn't dip it in the salt. You, di- you didn't dip it in the salt. You, d- you dipped it in the bacon, and that's it's not gonna fly. You know, that's just what it is. Okay, so the Ger Rebbe, the new Gare Rebbe said back, he said, If I were just copying the previous Rebbe, why would you want me to be Rebbe to begin with? <laughs> in other words, if I'm just an imitation of someone else, is 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 that the leader that you want? Then I'm not ready. Okay, so now let's get back to Yitzhak. So Yitzhak inherited the car that Avraham put together. But you know what Yitzhak did? He took that car and he drove it, he drove it to new places. <laughs> But you know what? The new places that Yitzhak drove that car were all places that were on the road map of Avraham. He went to places that Avraham didn't go, but all those places were envisioned by Avraham. So it's new and it's old at the same time. But that's my example. Let me give you the Torah's example. And you'll see it very, very clearly. The Torah says that Abraham dug wells during his lifetime. And, you know, water, as you can imagine, if you're living in the middle of a desert, water is, that's big time cash, right? That's because Torah, you know, water is super valuable, right? That's that's why Torah is compared to water, right? You can't live without it. So, Avraham was very successful. Most people did not discover sources of water during their lifetime. But Avraham was very, very successful and blessed. And he, he discovered these, Torah, these, these wells of water. Now, either during his lifetime or after his lifetime, the plish team plugged up these wells with dirt. Just spitefulness or whatever their motive was, it wasn't positive. And now the Torah says, during the life of Yitzchak, now listen to this. This is this is gonna summarize everything that I've been saying in, in one beautiful example, in my opinion. Yitzhak redug the wells of Avraham. Remember, water equals Torah. Yitzhak redug the wells of Avraham, and he gave the names of those wells new names. Do you hear? Do you hear how awesome this is? He uncovered the Torah of his father, but he gave it a new name. In other words, it was new and it was old at the same time. Same water wells. The wells, the Torah of his father, he redug them through his own deruch, through his own Midah, his own personality trait, right? Which is Gvura. and he brought these waters, the same waters, into the world. You know, we one of the things on Simchas Torah we have. Uh, just while we're, we we celebrate, there's a you know like a, a wonderful guy in our our neighborhood, Eitan G, the the Jewish rapper, right. And he, he he raps like one of the, the songs every year. He stands on a chair and it's like a, it's a lot of fun. It's a big event and people kind of throw taluses over his head while he tries to get through this thing. But it's amazing to hear like these ancient words that he's saying, this old song that's hundreds or, you know, Mi Pierre is is what he sings. It's, I don't even know how old it is, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And he does it with his boombox rap beat. And you're hearing like today's sound, but it's like this radio, like turning into a radio frequency, which is coming from hundreds and hundreds of years before. And you, you just hear how the Torah is being made new again. And and this is our job, right? To make it new, but to maintain its link to the original light. So now let's talk about Pinchas. Remember, Pinchas and Yitzchak are the same gamatria. I want to show you how this dynamic exists in. Pinchas also, in a very interesting, perhaps new way. So the the Ari HaKodesh, teaches that when Pinchas enters to kill Qasbi and Zimri, that the souls of Nadav and Avihu fly inside of him. Now you'll remember Nadav and Avihu were the two sons of two eldest sons of Arna-Kohen, and they died the, the first day that the temple was being inaugurated, the uh, the Mishkan, the, the the tabernacle in the desert, was being inaugurated. So at its dedication ceremony, right, which was a big, huge, happy event, it says that God rejoiced that day as much as he did when the whole world was created. And we know that the Mishkan was, was, a, was a microcosm of the perfected world, okay? So, so what happened was Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron come in and they bring what's called Esh Zara, strange fire. So this is a, a very lengthy topic in itself. But the bottom line is, is that they're killed. A divine fire comes down from heaven and takes their souls. Because they did something awesome and they did something from a place of like unbelievable love. But they weren't commanded to do it. Not only weren't they commanded to do it, that, that in itself wasn't the problem. They didn't consult with Moshe first when they wanted to institute their new idea in Torah observance. They didn't go to the head of the generation. And and that was the end. That was the end of their life. So now listen to this. Pinchas is about to do this awesome thing, bring down peace, stop the plague. There's this plague. And I I know I didn't even go into why the other reason the plague started, the whole worship of Baal Peor, but... I guess we'll have to leave that aside because that's... Anyway, the Jewish people ended up accidentally worshiping this idol. And it, it's it's just such a strange episode. I, I, I Let's not go into it right now because it's just too mind-bending. All right. I, I can't say that and not tell you. Basically, the way to worship this idol was to defecate on it. And the Jewish people thought they were entrapped and then they ended up sleeping with these harlots. And, and 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 many of the Jews thought that they were actually desecrating the idol. They thought that this was like the best deal ever. We get to desecrate idol worship and sleep with these women. But they didn't realize that they were doing two like big no-nos. And that was a big reason why this plague was breaking out, that Pinchas was able to stop. And of course, Cosby and Zimri were only exacerbating um this, this whole thing because they were publicly doing it right now in front of Moshe even. But they, the actual act itself was an attempt, but it was, you know, before the eyes of everyone because everyone knew what was going on. By the way, let me add one more thing. Rab Chaim Shmuel Levitz, the, the Rosh Yeshiva, alav of, HaShalom of, of the Mir Yeshiva, says, what, is the, what was the um, theology behind defecating on a statue which was, by the way, in the ancient world among non-Jews, was considered the most disgusting form of worship. Okay, so if you if you're having a visual, a visceral reaction to this, this discussion, it was shared from 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 the contemporaries of those who were doing it. What was the idea? Because it just sounds like just disgusting. Like, what was the religious idea behind it? And it's fascinating. Listen to what Rab Chaim Shmulevitz says. He says that, you know what this worship was? It was a worship of self that whatever I do is fantastic. And interesting. (laughs) It's actually, and he said that it was a very contemporary idea. You know, do you know people like this? Like, why should I change? Change? Why? I'm so good. Everything I do is so good. Why would I want to change? Or, you know, when I get angry and I yell and I scream or I'm like, I'm in a really bad mood all the time. That's just me. Do you, do you want me not to be me? Like it's like, and what is the implied commentary there? Me is so good. Even the most horrific, you know, <laughs> contemptible aspects of me are just so wonderful. Why, why don't you see that? Why don't you see when I snap at you, and why where I'm selfish, and you know all the rest? That it's not as wonderful as as I see. So that, that is the that is the contemporary cousin, if you will, of the worship of Baal Pior, of the worship of 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 through defecation. There is no bad, wonderful aspect of me. Can you imagine? Very interesting, very interesting. It also tells you that if you hear any idea that just sounds totally outlandish, but was actually taken seriously, that it's worth taking seriously to actually figure out what they had in mind. Right? Because when you hear the explanation of it, it actually, oh, yeah, I kind of get that, you know? Anyway, let's get back to Nadav and Avihu and Pinchas. So the souls of Nadav and and Pinchas oh, fly into, I'm sorry, the souls of Nadav and Avihu fly into Pinchas. Very, very, very interesting. And they receive their rectification from Pinchas. Why? Because Pinchas before he did what he did, went up to Moshe and asked, what is the halacha in this situation? And and Moshe communicates to him, you know? Actually, the truth is is that Moshe forgets what it is, and Pinchas says, isn't it not to take vengeance? And and, uh, Moshe says, you know, the one who, who, who knows should, should follow through. So, so now let's return back to our theme of the new and the old. And then we're going to go deeper. The idea is, is that Nadav and Avihu had this incredible relationship with God like really super, super duper high level, super duper high level, and from a place of tremendous love. But you know, the two wings of the dove, if you wanna fly, one is Yira and one is Ava. It's gotta be love and Yira, or sometimes it's, Yira is translated as fear, sometimes it's translated as awe, right? And and the truth is is that there's the lower yira, which is fear, and there's the higher yira, which is awe. But it's it's one unit. That's one side, and then you have love on the other side. And if one's love gets the better of them, so what's an example? God loves me so much; He doesn't care if I keep Shabbos. God loves me so much; He doesn't care if I go to McDonald's. God loves me so much. X, Y, and Z. Right. So if that's the case, then a a person needs more yira. They need more yira. And if a person feels as though, oh no, I forgot to say a call before I drank that, you know, bit of juice, God's going to smite me, then that person has too much yira. And they need more ava, they need more love. They've got to balance it out. And, and so this is sort of a spiritual self-exam that you can give yourself on an ongoing basis because you should have this wonderful relationship with God. God is our core relationship in our lives, right? And so we, we need to keep it balanced. You need to have both wings of the dove. You know, if you have like a dove with only one wing, you know what happens? It just goes around in circles. A, it can't get off the ground. And B, it just goes around in circles. It's a very pathetic construct. You want to have two wings and you want to soar into the heavens, right? But for that, you need Yira and Ava, equally balanced. So Pinchas, he does something that came from a place of love. And again, I appreciate the irony of this, since he did what could be considered a violent act, but he didn't do it from a place of anger. There was no iota of anger. You know, a lot of people, they want you to keep the mitzvahs because they're keeping the mitzvahs. <laughs> you know, if I if I have to not go to the movies on Friday night, then you shouldn't be able to either. And that sort of anger and Pettiness is, you know, is 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 sort of like masked over, you know, in the language of religious conversations, right? But at the root of it is is this sort of petty spitefulness, which is ridiculous, you know. It has to come from a place of love. So, so now let me introduce a new concept for you, and we're still on the same topic. But again, you need to see the greatness of Pinchas. And this applies to all of us right now. So let me introduce it the way Rav Frumer introduces the idea. He says in the name of the Pshiska Rebbe. Remember, the Pshiska Rebbe was the, the Rebbe of, of the Kotzka Rebbe, okay? And he was a student of the Yidda Kodesh, who was, of course, a student of the Choz of Lublin, so the Pshiska Rebbe said, "If there were a fool, a tipesh, thats a fool—that means someone who's unlearned in Torah, right? Not not a not a great place to be in the in the circles of Pshisk. Believe me. If if someone were a tipesh, a fool, and he had and he was lugging around, you ready, thirteen cartloads of Olam Habah, right? Of the next world. He's got he doesn't just have a share in the next world." He has thirteen shares in the next world. Right? That's 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 a lot of heaven, right? So the Pshiska Rebbe said, I wouldn't envy him at all. Why? Because he's a fool. Okay, so what does that mean? We have to go a little bit deeper here. And now we're starting to get into the depths. You know, in terms of the service of God, there's the base level, base meaning ground level, that you're keeping the commandments, you're keeping the mitzvot as best you can, right? And all of I, we should all just be at that level, Right? That would be a wonderful thing. But if you really want to advance, in other words, why did the Shizkar disregard these 13 wagon loads of ulama ba of heaven that this fool was carrying around? We're going to answer that question. You have that which you're commanded, which is, you know, that's big. That's big. But... Is that the extent of your relationship with God? Are you only doing that which you're commanded? Or are you in a love relationship with God where you're doing it in an even more beautiful way? And you're doing things that are special, that are Torah deck, not your own kind of inventions, right? But I'm talking about things that are actually within the realm of Torah and Halakha. Are you doing extra things that aren't being asked of you? Even if they're little things. These would be what I would call the little things that are the big things, right? Like maybe you don't have to go out of your way for someone, but maybe you go out of your way for someone. That's big. And why are you doing it? Are you Are doing it? And listen to this now. This is also such a big point. Rob firmer brings it down. Not to fix your own soul. See, for a lot of us, and you know myself included at different points in my spiritual journey, if you asked me, what's the highest achievement that you could reach spiritually? I would have told you, wow, if I could fix my own soul, that would be like the most giant thing I could imagine. So there's something way beyond that, which is that you're just doing it for God see you're you you have removed yourself as the center of the store it's not even about you you're just doing it for God so classically speaking and and now in our generation this is a little bit different now for good reason because of the long exile and because of the Holocaust and because of the lack of uh continuity in terms of tra- handing over the tradition to the last couple of generations. You know, many of us in, in in our generation, myself included, have really had to start in many ways from scratch. But classically speaking, the way that one would advance in Torah and their relationship with God is that you would begin from a standpoint of Yira, and you would advance to Ava. You would begin from this place of fear slash awe and advance to love. Now, a lot of people begin with love. Like, I love you, God. How can I express my love for you? Oh, there are things called mitzvot? Well, then I got to do the mitzvot. So again, in our generation, that makes sense. I'll give you another version of that, okay? Just some Jewish uh, sociology right now, which is that growing up, you couldn't learn Kabbalah or anything like that, any of those concepts, until you were 40 and married, okay? You had to consider how you had to have an amazing grounding, in Halakha and in Talmud and in all the revealed sources, and you had to have a stable emotional life, right? Which was, you know, symbolized by being married. And then, after that, you could then begin to take on the more mystical concepts because you had a strong foundation. Today, that's different. Today, because of the exile, because we, you know, you know, Do you know how many people go to science fiction films and they say this is like they look at the Matrix and they say this is so much deeper than Torah? Do do you know what a slap in the face that is to, 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 to Torah and to God? And I'm not criticizing the Matrix, you know, but people are seeing deeper ideas in pop culture than they're seeing in the Torah. That's a real problem. That's a real problem because the Torah is the deepest, 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 deepest thing there is. So it's come to the point where just in order to compete with just everyday society, the Torah has to start revealing its secrets much earlier than historically it was accustomed to. So much so that just like someone might begin with love now instead of and now, someone might begin They might not even know how to read a word in Hebrew and they can tell you who was reincarnated reincarnated into who according to the Zohar and the Ari, right? It's like crazy that someone would know that before they would know how to read like a Hebrew word. But but that is what it is today and, and, and that's what it needs to be today so that the soul connection can be revealed between us and God. And then it can become nourished in a more, you know, classic way. So what's the point? We haven't forgotten about the 13 wagons and we haven't forgotten about Yitzhak and Pinchas. We haven't forgotten about any of these things, but we're going deeper. The idea is that If you really want to have that breakthrough intimacy with God, a person has to be doing something that's coming from a love place that they're not required to do. Foundationally, this is very challenging to someone who grows up in Western society. Because here's the classic question. What's the bigger mitzvah? something that I'm commanded to do or something that I do from my own free will. So it's a little bit of a tricky discussion. But now we have the historical framework for me to give you a coherent answer for this. The Talmud says that it's the bigger mitzvah to be commanded to do something rather than to do it from your own free will. Now, listen to their explanation. And this is not the end of the conversation, by the way. Listen to their explanation. It's very interesting. When I tell you, imagine you're in my house, right? And I say to you, hey, do the dishes. Do you know what the first thing you don't want to do is? The dishes. (laughs) That's human nature. Hey, be on time. You know what the first thing that I don't want to be is on time. Don't tell me what to do. Just, Just lighten up, man. Just lighten up. Do not tell me what to do. Okay, so the Talmud knew this thousands of years ago. The Talmud understood that if you're commanded, that that arouses your Yitzhahara. And then it's actually more difficult for you to do the mitzvah because you have to overcome your negative inclination in order to do it precisely because you've been commanded. And therefore, it's a harder and greater act of service to God because so much more effort goes into it then if you just decide, hey, you know what? I'm in a generous mood. I got an extra five bucks in my pocket. I'll throw it to this guy sitting on the sidewalk. You have had to overcome nothing in yourself to do that. Okay. So that's why being commanded is higher than doing it from your free will offering. All right. But now the conversation progresses. What if you are now in that relationship where you're keeping the mitzvahs, now are you only doing that which you were commanded to do? Now, if that's your foundation, you are already doing that which is commanded, you are already overcoming that negative impulse and doing that greater service, now here's the question, is that the end of your divine service? Or do you now start doing things above and beyond that from a place of love? Because that's the place that all of us have to get to. Okay? And that's very different. Hear this well. That's very different from, I'm just doing the place of love from step one. No. <laughs> that's If that's what you think, you've missed the entire discussion. We start from this place of being commanded, of overcoming our yetsaharas, our negative inclination, and doing it. And now, do I just stop there? Or now do I do these free will love offerings above and beyond that? If you get to that place, and here's the point of all this. If you get to that place, you start to receive the Or Panecha. I'm going to translate that. That means the light from Caviojo, humanly speaking, the face of God. Of course, as we always say, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. But sometimes this language is used just to give us something to wrap our minds around. It's the direct light. And we want to be able to receive from the direct light. And even in heaven, even in Shemayam, you don't necessarily receive from the direct light. That's a whole extra quantum step upward. And that only goes to those people who are not just doing what's commanded, but who go above and beyond and add acts of love beyond to which that they're commanded. Those people in the next realm Receive the Or Panecha, this straight light from God. And that's why the Pshiska Rebbe said that this tipesh, this fool, I don't envy his 13 wagon loads of the next world, because he's not receiving them in the next world from an Or Panecha, from this direct light. Do you know what Pinchas did? Pinchas added. Pinchas was not commanded to do what he did. Pinchas added this as an act of love just for God. And so he went to this next level. But you know who also tried to go to the next level? Nadavinevihu, because they were also acting this act of love to their service. But the thing is, is that they didn't check with Moshe first. And that's when the new becomes too new and you lose the balance between the new and the old. And that's what Pinchas did amazingly under the most adverse crisis, total crisis, Situation: God is about to literally wipe out the Jewish people. People are dying. Thousands of people are dying left and right. And somehow he's able to do this amazing additional service, this amazing act of love, and check with Moshe first. And this is the rectification of Nadav and Avihu. And this is the... White fire happening within the black fire. This is the infinite point coexisting within the finite. Okay, now we're going to take it to the next step. We're going to take it to the next step. There's something called an orla, an orla is a barrier. Okay? So classically speaking, when a when a male is born, there's this extra bit of foreskin on their male organ. Okay? So in Hebrew the word for that is called Orla. And of course we cut that off on the eighth day, and that's the act of circumcision. Very big mitzvah, very big commandment. And if a person doesn't have that, they can have that later in life, right? Um, But what's fascinating about Orla, and what most people don't understand, is that they think that Orla is just this little kind of surgical procedure on the eighth day, and you throw a little party uh, to celebrate, and, you know, the baby heals quickly, and that's Kind of what it is. It's kind of a one-time event in a person's life. So Rav points out that the act of Mila, Mila is Hebrew for circumcision, the act of Mila is not over then, nor is it exclusively a male thing. It's for men and women. And that the great majority of this Mitzvah of Mila actually takes place over the entirety of your lives. And what is that? What is that? There is an orla around our hearts. A blockage around our hearts. And it's the same word is used, orla. Okay? It's a blockage. And that blockage actually comes between the mind and the heart. The mind and the heart can't get together fully because of this orla, this layer surrounding the heart. And the act of mila, which is for men and women throughout our lives, is to circumcise our hearts. And this is actually a mitzvah in the Torah itself, in those words. Okay, If you want to look it up, it's in Devarim, Deuteronomy 10.16. You'll see God says, Circumcise your hearts. Right? Okay, but now I want to get even deeper because this is now very, very deep. You see, what is Gehenna? What is this thing that's translated as hell, but it, it doesn't mean hell with all those associations? It's, it's, that's how it's translated. First of all, <clears throat> let's do a little Jewish geography, okay? <clears throat> At the end of Gomorrah Tamid, it says this very clearly, that Gehenim is located above the Rekia. The Rekia is the, translated as the firmament, or, you know, where heaven is, okay? Which means that, according to our understanding, you've got earth below, then you have Gehenim above earth, and then above Gehenim is Shemayim, or heaven. And all souls basically pass through Gehenim on their way to Shemayim. And again, just to put it very simply, it's like a, a, a soul dry cleaning, right? And it's been described in certain ways. One of the ways that's an amazing, kind of heartbreaking way to describe Gehenim. Let me just tell you, just as a preface, what Gehenna isn't, okay? It isn't It isn't. God says, okay, now I'm going to get you back. That's not what Gehenna is, okay? God isn't so petty. Gehenna is where you see two movies, they say. And by the way, the Vilna Gon was talking about seeing your life in Gehenna. He was using the, the phrase seeing, okay? I'm adding the word movie, but... He was already talking about seeing, which is very prescient, very, very interesting. So you see two movies. One is the life that you led. And you ready for this? The next is the life that you could have led. And when they don't match up, it hurts. You talk about the suffering of Gehenna. That is one articulation of what the suffering of Gehenna is. Now remember, in this life, we can still fix anything that we want to fix. So if you're projecting yourself into that stage and you go, wow, that didn't match up, you still can fix it in this life. Okay. So, so where there's life, there's hope. So no one should become despondent with that thought. It should just motivate us to to try to be in that place where it's sort of like, that's what I could have done, and I did it? Unbelievable. (laughs) That is so fantastic, right? Okay, so we can still do that, no matter what stage we are in our life. As I always like to point out, on the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah happens in the month of Tishrei. Now remember, Nisan is the first month of the year, which means Rosh Hashanah is the seventh month of the year. The beginning of the seventh month. Now, what other people on Earth celebrates the new year in the middle of the year? <laughs> I mean, is there anything more Jewish than that? But my interpretation of that is that it's never too late to begin. God is taking like the the point which is furthest away from the beginning, because after after Rosh Hashanah, you're you're, you're now coming closer to the first month. <laughs> Before Rosh Hashanah, you're closer to the first. You are taking the point which is the furthest away from the beginning. And you're saying, I can begin again at any time. Right? Isn't that beautiful? So we always can begin again. And as Rebbe Nachman says, a person should always say, if they ever get overwhelmed or despondent, I'm going to begin again right now. And you'll see you, you summon newness into the world. Right? Or you align yourself with the recreation of the world, which is always happening just by saying, I'm gonna begin again right now. And I've done it, it works, it works. Something, something magical happens when you do that. Um, okay, the point is, is that there's an orla around Shamayim. And now I want you to kind of just think in a more expansive way. Think of Shamayim, what we'll translate as heaven as another dimension. And think of this orla surrounding Shemayim, this barrier surrounding Shemayim, which we're calling Gehenim, as an orla around Shemayim and a dimension in and of itself. So, So if I want to get into the next world, I have to pass through this barrier, this orla called Gehenim in order to enter into Shammaya. Now listen to what Rav Shremer says. These are amazing, amazing words. If you get rid of the orla in this world, meaning to say, if you circumcise your heart in this world, if you get rid of that barrier around your heart, separating your mind from your heart in this world, if you live your life getting rid of that orla in this world, that Orla blocking Shamayim also disappears. Do you hear that? And then the soul can ascend straight into Shemayim. Do you hear that? Do you hear how we're turning Orla, which is a very physical concept, into this time-space dimensional concept construct. It's a very amazing thought that Rav Frimer is giving us in the fee Now, I want to tell you one more thing that Gehenim is made out of a person's sins and that each person's Gehenim is different from it than the other. Okay? So that When a soul encounters that orla, that barrier surrounding heaven, when a soul encounters that, what are they encountering? Let's say it's me. What I'm encountering is my own failures. My own, the things that I did wrong, that I didn't fix during my lifetime. So if I fix those things during my lifetime, what barrier is there? There's no barrier. Do you understand? In other words, Gehenna is not some institutional building that everyone gets ushered into because every Gehenna is different because it's literally composed of what we created. So so let's begin to wrap it up. I I realized one time something, which is that we said, according to the Ari, the souls of Nadav and Avihu went into Pinchas. Now, let me give you a very interesting illustration of this, in my opinion. Um, you know, there are halachas, there are laws, how you write the Hebrew letters. And if you look in a, a book that has Hebrew in it, it doesn't obey these laws, okay? These laws, but if you write a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll, you have to write the letters in these very specific ways. And these are actual halakhas, okay? Now, the way the letter pei, pei is the first letter of Pinchas, okay? By the way, I don't know if you've ever seen this name, but I don't know if you realize that this was an English translation of the name Pinchas. Phineas. Have you ever seen Phineas? Did you know that that was the same name as Pinchas? It is. Anyway. Pinchas begins with the letter Pe. Now the Torah way, if you're going to write the letter Pe in a Torah scroll, you have to write it. It's kind of like this curled shape. You have to write it so that the letter bays exists or the outline, or a white fire, if you will, letter bays appears in the middle of the letter Pe. In other words, the letter Pe is written with black ink, and in the middle you see the exact shape of the letter Bayes. And that's halacha, okay? So the Pe stands for Pinchas. What's the Beis within Pinchas? Well, Beis, we know, is the number two. Those are the two souls of Nada and Avihu inside Pinchas, right? Pe is the black fire. That's the revealed aspect. Pinchas, the person. But the white fire, Right? The souls of Nadav and Avihu, that's the two, that's the Beis, that's within the Pei of Pinchas. I'll give you a far out inverse of that, okay? If we said that the that the letter Beis is within the letter Pei, what what if we switch the Im- imagery, we turn it inside out? The first letter of the Torah is the letter Beis. Well, if it's the letter Beis, that means there's a white-fire Pe around it. <laughs> now, Pe and Pe, mouth, are the same. So again, Caviojo, God doesn't have a body, He doesn't have a mouth. But what do we say? We say God spoke the world into existence. Do you see how the, the letter Pe, Pe, is surrounding the bays of Breshis? Brishis, of course, means in the beginning, right? First word of the Torah. That the whole Torah is contained within that. So God is speaking, brishis, into existence, right? It's the inverse of what I just told you. Okay. So. So let's just recap. Maybe you're starting out of a place of love. I know in terms of my avoda, my, my spiritual journey within Torah, I started from a place of love, right? I just, I love you, God. I, I want to do for you. I want to I be good in your eyes. I want to, what can I do? What can I do? And I felt like keeping Shabbos was like the best thing that I could do. Like that, that somehow, you know, Shabbos is like Kind of the mitzvah. That's kind of the mitzvah, by the way, in case you don't know. You know, believe it or not, I don't want to get heavy on you, but I just, you know, if you're listening, if you're still listening at this point, you might as well hear it, you know. Which is that, you know, back in the day, you couldn't be, you could not be accepted as a Jewish witness if you didn't keep Shabbos. So you say, well, I pay my taxes, you know. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. You're telling me that I I am not considered upstanding enough to be a, a kosher witness in a court. And they're like, listen, nothing personal, but if you're not testifying with your life that God created the world, which is what it means to keep Shabbos, then it then then if you don't believe that, why should we believe your testimony? okay it's heavy you got to think about it um so so I'll tell you something you know just maybe to end on a personal note I haven't told you much personal over the, over the course of this talk at a big turning point in my life I was getting more and more drawn from this place of love right more and more drawn to wanting to keep the Torah wanting to keep Shabbos. And I remember I took a a midnight bus. It left at midnight from Amsterdam to Paris. And I remember I was all, all by myself. It was the first time in my life, I was 24 at the time, first time in my life that I had been alone. Okay, I was with a bus full of people, but I wasn't traveling with anyone. I didn't know anybody. Which is kind of amazing to me that I got 24 years without being on my own. I guess college i maybe I knew one or two people I don't know, but anyway, something very freeing about the type of thoughts that you think when you're by yourself you can you don't have to do stuff for other people at that point. you can kind of just figure out well what i what do I want to do and And I remember thinking the following: I remember thinking that. I imagine myself not in a suicidal way, not in a morbid way, but I imagine myself as a very old man on my deathbed. and I started thinking I had a, like a kind of a strange thought, but something that had a big effect on me. I started thinking that how I feel about myself in that moment is kind of the only important. <laughs> thing in my life because before I leave this world how I feel about my life I'm going to wonder whether whether I lived a life that I was happy with or not and I always wanted to keep Shabbos and I thought to myself if I if I haven't keep, kept Shabbos by that point in my life I'm going to be mad at myself I'm, I'm going to leave this world angry at myself and I don't want to leave this world angry at myself so anyway, so I start keeping Shavas. But but the point is is that I was coming from a place of love. But then I got to a place of being commanded. And then from that place of commanded, I returned to a place of coming from a place of love. And that's the orpenecha. And 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 that's that's when everything sort of like opens up. And that is the equilibrium. That's the harmony that we're supposed to be at in terms of our relationship with God. Where we're being commanded, however, you get to that place, maybe you started off from that place, maybe you, uh, you know, journeyed to that place. But that once you're at that place, that you're still doing those things that you don't have to be doing as an act of love for God. But combining those new acts of service with the old, right? That's the chala dipped into the soul. That's Pinchas consulting with Moshe before he does what he does. And then when we get to that place, we break through the orla. We break through this this cement around our hearts, turning our heart of flesh into a heart of stone. We turn it back into a heart of flesh. And when we break through, when we break through that orla, that barrier in our hearts, and we live our entire lives as an ongoing effort breaking through those things, we also get rid of that orla surrounding the next world. And then when we enter into the next world, we're able to receive the orpanecha, the straight light from God directly And we're not like the fool who has 13 wagon loads of olam haba, who's getting his reward, by the way, who's getting legitimately getting his reward for everything he did from God, but he's not receiving it in this ultimate high way that God wants to give it, and who God gives it to those who love him the most. So this is a blueprint for our lives, this is a blueprint for our divine service, this is a blueprint for this world and the next world and the entry into the next world. And God should just bless us that we should just be able to, to do all these things, not just to fix ourselves, but just for God, period. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.